What is crackalackin' Hardware Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli coming at you without my fantabulous co-host Adam Frommel. I am, however, as always, super pleased and excited to be joined by good friend, longtime colleague, perennial Hardwood Knox guest, Bleacher Reports' Grant Hughes. Follow him on Twitter for his bi-monthly tweet, at GT underscore Hughes. You won't regret it. Great writer. Check out his stuff over at Bleacher Report. Before we dive in, very quickly, just a reminder to pretty please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast. We are found wherever you listen to them. We're also on YouTube. Search Hardwood Knox on YouTube. We're also on Instagram now, at Hardwood underscore Knox. We are all over the place on Twitter as well, at Hardwood Knox. So follow us everywhere. Help us juice those content numbers and expand our brand. Grant, how are you doing? Dan, I'm doing great. And apropos of your intro, I did tweet today. So, and it's been more than two weeks. So this is a pretty big day for everybody. Uh, I have it bi-monthly now because I feel like I haven't gotten a notification that Grant Hughes tweeted for the first time in a while. So I didn't even see today's <laughs> tweet, but um, I'm looking at it now. And it was like, it was, it was within the past couple hours of recording this yeah. too. Well, I mean, yeah, so I'm still riding high. It's really a buzz. Uh, I, I basically was just agreeing with Caitlin Cooper, which is generally a good a, a good, uh, a good, stance to take. That is the just a fault to whatever Caitlin Cooper says. And right. you know, I just ride the coattails of her genius all the time. <laughs> but but anything, are you good otherwise? Staying off Twitter, is that, is that helping I'm, you at all? I'm, I'm great otherwise, and I'm especially great tonight because I'm, exci- I'm excited to talk to you just in general, but I'm excited to talk to you about a basketball game because we don't really do this very often where it's sort of, this is, we're recording this pretty much right after game two of the finals. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a fun thing to sort of do an instant reaction. I think, uh, you know, we will, we'll talk about some other stuff, but I'm excited to just kind of pick through this game and really the series as a whole. Uh, cause you know, uh, I guess, uh, that's kind of why we started doing this in the first place following basketball because the games are fun. So I'm, I'm excited to, to kind of focus on that. I'm uh, going to sidestep that comment about <laughs> why we started to cover basketball. Um, yes. We're going to talk about game two and the finals at large. Then we're also going to get into our most interesting teams to watch for the off season. But yeah, let's, let's start there. It's the Suns, after beating the bucks um, one eighteen to one Oh eight in game two, we're now up two to Oh in the finals. What do you make of this series at this point? Like, what is the single biggest takeaway from the first two games of of these finals? So I'll preface it. My my thought after the first game, or really during the first game, which was just an extension of kind of the Suns throughout the playoffs, was just the macro thought is the Suns have more guys that can just take whatever it is that the the playoff defense they're facing is giving them and succeed that way. So and you saw that in game one where the Bucks switched a bunch and like, OK, cool, well, we can we can do that. If, and if the Bucks make a bunch of adjustments in game two, which they did, they tried, which was everybody was screaming for it, even if, you know, that was right or wrong. I don't know. Um, but the Suns just adjust. They have guys, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, you know, principally, but Mikhail Bridges, who basically matched Holiday and Middleton's scoring total on his own tonight, which is a big deal for a fourth option. Um, they just have a bunch of guys or more guys than the Bucks anyway that are adaptable and don't have glaring weaknesses and aren't married to one particular style on either end. And I think 
just that's what you need to to make it through a bunch of playoff series and win a title. And and it's a stark juxtaposition against the Bucks, who for the last several years have been, you know, I think rightly uh, been criticized for being a system team or, you know, not being flexible. And to the Bucks' credit, they're trying to be flexible. But what we're learning on their end, I think, is that they just don't have the talent that is flexible to succeed in a flexible scheme or an adaptable scheme. So that to me is the principal difference. The Suns have guys that can beat you regardless of how you play them. The Bucks are set up to sort of only win the way that they want to play. And when you take those things away from them that they really want on either end, they just aren't as good. So I gave you a lot to chew on there, but that's that's the nutshell of this series to me is the Suns just have more guys that can, you know, win in different ways. Yeah, and you mentioned the Bucks adjustments. They made a ton in game yeah. two. They they defended so many different ways in the first half alone. And it's just the Suns are going to make these not just difficult shots. They're going to make the right passes. They're going to make 85 passes on the same possession. That It was like the penultimate possession of the first half. I don't know if you remember that, where they threw 10 passes and it ended in N1 to DeAndre Ayton. The Bucks defense on that possession was fantastic basically yeah. the entire time. They're still going to find a way to pick you apart. They're, they're at once surgical but also decisive, and they can play with speed if they need to, even if they're burning seconds off the shot clock. And to have so many guys comfortable doing that, you just look at the synergy between a Cam Johnson and a Mikael Bridges and a DeAndre Ayton. This is outside of the stars. And then there are just possessions where if there's one lapse, or even if you defend it perfectly, and Devin Booker's just going to go ahead and throw a cross-court, one off-handed pass to CP3 in the corner for a three on the baseline, it's just... They're so ridiculous. They're so deep. Uh, I don't know if we heard. I kind of like tuned out during the end of the the game. I don't know if we heard what type of injury Torrey Craig is dealing with, but they already lost Dario Saric with a torn ACL. That Torrey Craig injury did not look great in the moment. And I still just have full confidence that they're going to end up winning this series because of the the talent up and down the roster. And they're they're almost, or no, they are built to play all these different ways without even necessarily changing up their personnel. Like, yeah, go small at center sometimes instead of Frank Kaminsky now that Sharich is gone. But it's just, you could play technically play small with Aiton. Like, do you need to take him off the court if Giannis does get to the five? And looking at this more so through the, the Bucks perspective, I don't know what they do here. There, yeah. I look. Even though people make fun of Coach Budenholzer, including myself, he has forgotten more about basketball over the last sixty seconds than I will ever know in my lifetime. And it does like he's done things like shorten up his rotation. You know, sometimes I mean Pat Connaughton has given them some good minutes, even though I still think he tries to make Pat Connaughton happen too often. You can kind of criticize him for playing Jeff Teague too much, but the alternative might be Bryn Forbes, who's just going to get picked on defensively, and if he's not knocking down shots and otherworldly clip. What do you do? The two things I kind of take away from this is you need Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday to play a lot better. Otherwise, you're just, you're fucked. Like, there's just no way you can win. In game two, they go a combined um, 12 of twelve of 37 from the floor. Not great. They were two of, um, two of nine, yes, combined from three. Middleton was good, was fine in game, better than fine in game one. Drew Holiday was 4 of 14, 0 of 4 from three. He's had a wonky playoffs. Like, he's had some really good moments, but he just hasn't been great offensively by any stretch. And that puts you at a disadvantage because those are the two guys that when things bog down in the half court, you want your offense to run through them more so than Giannis. And to Giannis's credit, like, he's playing on this bung left knee, and he's had to go into his bag, let's call it, uh, or people will call it, in the half court 
bogged down more more often than I think he would ideally want to. And part of that is probably just because you don't want him blitzing up the floor on that knee or because he can't do it. And he's like, he's playing well. And to like in in game two, he played, he played really well. He had two, uh what do he have? He had 42 points on 15 of 22 shooting, one of five from three, but that's just you look at that. 11 of 18 at the foul line. I think the Bucks take that on most nights, mm-hmm. 61% from him. And so I don't want to oversimplify it to Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton need to play better, but it is the element of that uh, because those guys like need to hit those difficult shots. And Chris Middleton, when he's on, is probably a top 10, top 15 player in the NBA. But when he's off, he's off. And he just doesn't have, I guess, the same lo- level of consistency. And the final thing, like the second thing here would be, as I mentioned before, I don't know what the adjustments are. I saw people calling for the Bucks to start. Giannis at center and like I don't know that Brooke Lopez has been the problem he wasn't as good on offense in game two but like he's not this super big defensive liability he's actually helped them in spots and you're running out of personnel at that point because if you're just cutting you know if you're cutting Brooke Lopez's minutes from 28 um, or 23 like he had in game one to what 10 12 15 like who are you playing you're not adding more Bobby Portis minutes he didn't even play five minutes in game two so just they don't, I don't know that they have the personnel to even do that, nor do I know if it even helps, because I think you would do that, I guess, to create more offensive mismatches, which does make sense. Their offensive rating has not been great in this series. At the same time, you get to a point where you run out of bodies, because if you start Giannis at the five, you're essentially saying, okay, no Bobby Portis at all, and Brooke Lopez is going to play between 10 and 15, and just like, where are you going? Because P.J. Tucker isn't the answer on offense either. That's been the other thing here, is just... You know, he, he's never had that volume, but it's just when you have someone where people can be stashed on him or you just know that he's that, you know, he hasn't been shooting well from the corners in the playoffs anyway. If you have that guy, you know, that, that's another li- liability that you have to overcome. And there have been nights, many nights, where I don't know that he provides enough defensive value to necessarily make up for what he, what you're giving up on offense with him. And that's the dilemma to me for the Bucks. I have zero answers for them moving forward. Yeah, I mean, so... Just just to put a specific point on, on the Drew Holiday thing and, and the lack of adjustments that seem obvious, like the Bucks did almost everything that we asked them to do after game one. We being, you know, whatever, basketball, Twitter, or just critics of, of anyone after game one saying like, well, here's what needed to change. Like Drew Holiday was super aggressive out of the gate. It just noticeably heard the chatter or was informed by the coaching staff or got there on his own realizing – I can't be four of 14 and make a bunch of defensive mistakes, which he did. Like that was the low key problem in game one, which is out of character for him. And he came out guns blazing. And then you look up and at one point he was three for 12. He finished seven of 21. So if, if, if your fix is drew holiday, be more aggressive. And he did pick up Chris Paul, but you know, it, it, before half court several times. So that was another adjustment. We're going to put holiday on Chris Paul. We're going to have him chase over screens a little more. We're not going to immediately surrender and give up switches. All this stuff, the Bucks just they they did what was asked of them after losing game one, and the result was the same. So it comes down to just I don't know that the Bucks have the top end talent necessary to effectively implement the adjustments that everyone's asking them to make. And so that was that's what is gonna be so weird about this offseason. I we're just burying the Bucks right now, like the series is not over, but just looking ahead. So there were two problems with the Bucks' last two playoff runs. One was you could say, well, Giannis doesn't have enough help, right? Like Middleton is a, you know, whatever you think of Middleton, if he's your number two and you don't have a lot else, doesn't feel like a championship team. 
So you get Drew Holiday. And now Drew Holiday is wildly inconsistent in the playoffs. And as the Bucks, you have no avenue to getting more talent. So Giannis still doesn't have enough help. I guess the only bright side to that is we can't kill them for being inflexible. Like Budenholzer, I don't think Budenholzer should lose his job. I, I think had they lost a round or two earlier, it was a foregone conclusion he was going to be fired. Um, I think with the talent that they have, with the limitations of guys like Tucker and Lopez, and we're seeing the limitations of guys like Holiday, even a max player that you give up a million firsts to get. I think Budenholzer's done everything you can with this roster. Um, I, I just think there's just nothing to do. And specifically, yeah, okay, let's play Giannis at center more. Everybody likes to go smaller. Let's take Brooke Lopez off the floor. Well, DeAndre Ayton is guarding Giannis anyway, all the time, when Lopez is in the game. So what are you gaining? I just, I don't understand it. You're taking a shooter off the floor, a big shooter. And, you know, granted, Lopez has not been anything close to lights out. But you're taking your your rim protector off the floor. He has value in that regard. And you're going to play Bryn Forbes. Or you're going to play Pat Con Like, you just, you're not gaining anything by going smaller, which is hard to do in the NBA because... It seems like every team in every previous playoff round, the Clippers being a great example, gain something by going smaller. The Bucks aren't going to do that. So I agree. I don't know what the fixes are. You could just look at it and say, well, the Suns won by 10 points. They made 20 out of 40 from three. They won't do that again. The odds of Mikael Bridges scoring 28 and Middleton and Holiday combining for 28 are not great. But the thing about like hoping or expecting – you know, somewhat fluky or anomalous things to even out over the course of a series is this is not a long series now. It's 2-0. There's not a lot of time for whatever regressions you're expecting to affect the rest of the series. The Suns have two wins banked. So the, the Bucks just don't have a margin for error and they can't count on, well, event, you know, give us enough time. Middleton and Holiday will sort of hit their levels. Like maybe, but it's not going to be enough now that you're in an 0-2 hole. So I don't know. I'm ready to bury the Bucks, but with no shame. Like they're they're doing what they can with the talent they have. The Suns. We probably haven't talked about the Suns just being great uh, enough, even though you did uh, specifically uh, before the season. So kudos to you. You can take your victory lap. I think on on this one. Um, I I'll mockingly take victory laps as a joke, but I can't take victory laps given how wrong I am all the time. Uh, so just uh, that's why you have to take this victory lap. I will say it's just funny how people remember either when you're wrong or just something that they don't disagree with. And then turns like I picked the nuggets to win the title last year in the preseason. Actually, they made it to the Western conference finals. And then I, I caught shit then. And then I caught shit when they lost in the Western conference finals. I picked the Suns to win the title this year before the start of the playoffs. I actually didn't have to make a preseason pick. Um, and just, I haven't like no one said anything about that and I don't expect them to, but it's just funny how people remember the negative or just something that they don't agree with that is then affirmed that they shouldn't have agreed with it to a T more than like, I don't, I don't know how many people picked the Suns to win the title at the start of the playoffs. And I imagine I was, I was among the few that picked them to beat the Lakers in general, let alone win the title. So, and I'm not doing a victory. I, this is a victory lap, I guess, but it's just, <laughs> they like, they just make so much sense. And this is a conversation to have if and when they win the title. There's a level of sustainability here. I know that Chris mm -hmm. Paul's player option is going to cause consternation among some in the Suns organization. He's also age 36. So even if he comes back, there's the element of that. But you have Booker, Bridges, Ayton, Cameron Johnson. That's a real actual base. And your cupboard isn't dry if you need to go out and make a trade. Um, to help this, yes, you you owe your 2022 first to Oklahoma City, but like 
you know, if you really wanted to take a bigger swing, you could. And one of the trades I proposed for them is like, what if they went after a Larry Nash Jr. Um, in the offseason now? They have their, after the draft, they'll have their first round pick. They still have Jalen Smith sitting there, the number 10 pick from last year, building stuff around that, maybe. But this team, like, I don't think this, and even if it is, even if Chris Paul leaves, or even if they flame out in the first round next year, like, this just, this is not a random title when you've watched them all season and with the way that they're playing and their top to bottom depth. And it's just, you know, I don't even, not that it's more, I don't want to say it's a surprise, I guess because Mikael Bridges doesn't really surprise me anymore, although did I see him scoring 27 points in game two of the NBA Finals? Not necessarily. But the fact that they have that guy where, yeah, he won't put up offensive volume a ton, but on nights where he can or you need him, like, there'll be nights when he does. There's just so many different ways they could attack you. And, like, there are nights when DeAndre Ayton's not going to be great on offense, but you can count on him to still have his defensive motor going. Like, we're, we're past the point where it seems like one is tied to the other for him. And he picked a good time to put together not only the best, but the most consistent stretch of basketball of his career, I would argue. There's so much to like. Like, even Cameron Payne is just, like, in he doesn't play 10 minutes in game two. He's one of three from the floor. Scores only two points. And yet, I'm watching, and I'm like, Cameron Payne, wasn't in the league basically all of last season until the Sun signed up before the bubble. He's now drawing double teams out of the pick and roll. And would be a no-brainer rotation guy for the Bucks. Like he would be playing 35 minutes for the Bucks. It, it like just and he's you know a limited factor for this. this. I just it, like the thing the thing for me is there were plays tonight, I, I noted two of them where I I think it's fair to call Bridges the fourth option for the Suns because Aiden, you know, just if offensive rebounds count, then yeah, it, for sure. It, well, that too. But like Bridges is theoretically a three and D role player guy, and I think he is just sort of like a lab created, perfect specimen of a three and D, you know, wing. But he also, I mean, it's, it speaks to the growth of the Suns' young guys. I mean, Booker obviously is taking a leap to to me like a full on top option, a top option on a championship winning team. Like that's hard to become. He's pretty close to doing that. DeAndre Ayton has become a incredibly good role-playing center with, I think, based on his trajectory so far, the potential to be much more. But Bridges is theoretically a catch-and-shoot guy who defends really good wings. And then, oh, also, when he gets a smaller guy matched up on him and the shot clock's winding down, he can take three dribbles and generate his own shot. Like, that's... He has, like, a mini-game now. It's just, he does. It's so it's wild. Just, and, and Suns fans are going crazy because they're like, we've seen this all year, but it's like, Okay, cool. This is the finals, and he has the confidence and the, the game to do this, it, to, to bail them out of possessions as a fourth option and get a really good shot. Like that, I mean, talk about a luxury. Against, that's a, just... de- against a defense like the Bucks too, and that's you don't have to do that on a night-in, night-out basis. And so even for right. someone who, you know, we had a whole podcast where we build the Suns as contenders, and I think we both said that they were the biggest threat to coming out of the West of the non-Lakers division at the time. And to still see that like all these guys do this on like fucking Cam Johnson just <laughs> yeah okay it's cool that he held his own defensively all regular season but now he's doing it all throughout the playoffs and like there's more to him than just his shooting like we've always known that but it's also there's more to him than just his shooting in the playoffs there's like that level of holy crap here and so I want to wrap this up well I guess it's with three things I'm going to want your final prediction after this but shifting back to the Bucs, we, we collectively agree or that we can't see anything that they could do this series to turn the tides, aside from Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton make shots on the same night. And by the way, that's the other thing. I'll have to go back and look. It doesn't feel like all three of the Bucs stars have been cooking at once this postseason. Mostly one of them, sometimes two of them, but never three. But outside of that, 
like we we agree that there's just we don't have the answers yeah i think so i think the suns are just sort of answer proof i think that's part of the problem whatever you're going to try they're going to be at least capable of attacking the right way and so i would ask then do you if you're the bucks and i would agree with you that coach bud that he's not he's not going to lose his job after taking them to the finals and i think now he's at least proven he's flexible um he probably loses his job if kevin durant it has his foot yeah. behind the line on that shot crazy to think that you know, there's obviously other moments. Nothing ever comes down to one whistle or one shot. But yeah, that was very close to Bud losing his job there. Do you look at this series if they lose in four or five? Like if it's something like that and read into it as, well, we have to figure out a way to do something significant to this roster. Or is it, as you just said, the Suns are so answer proof and there's a chance that there's one, not another team in the league. At full strength, even. I'm, if you rack your brain for the teams in the league that would be as answer-proof as the Suns, it might be Brooklyn if all their stars were healthy. And yeah. But you could look at it as, okay, well, the Suns, they might be busted up or it might be different if Chris Paul's a, another year older. Or do you actually look at the series and go, okay, we need to do something. And what is that something? Well, so this is kind of an elevated version of the question we ask about a team like, like say, the Portland Trailblazers for several years where, like, or even, you know, the Pacers are kind of another example where you'd say, you know, there's there's a third option between being a go-all-out contender every year and rebuilding, and some franchises are kind of cool being very good for as long as they can be very good. And this, the Bucks, it's sort of a notch or two up where it's like, I think the Bucks realistically, if they change nothing, uh, maybe Giannis actually does learn to shoot. You know, maybe DiVincenzo gets back. I mean, they're missing DiVincenzo. That's not insignificant. Right. Um, it, you know, that's a key rotation guy that would really matter in this series, particularly. He's healthy, uh, a couple breaks, and the Bucks could be back in the finals without swinging a big deal. I think just it, it's I so sure if you lose in the finals, your inclination is going to be we got to change something. The Bucks just don't have the tools to do that. So it's at that, I'm punting on your question because I just can't think of a realistic way that they're going to do anything beyond the taxpayers mid-level, uh, you know, some organic growth from some of the guys they still have. They're not a young team, so that's tough. But the urgency needs to be there because you mentioned Brooklyn. If Brooklyn's healthy, the Bucks are nowhere close to the best team in the East. If the Sixers trade Ben Simmons and up, you know, get better and Joel Embiid is healthy for a year and that looks just like a more sensible team than the one we saw this year, then are the Bucks the third best team in the East? Like the Hawks look really good. They have a ton of young guys that could all get better. So now where are the Bucks in the East? So the urgency to do something, I'm sure they are feeling it and should be feeling it. The ability to do something is what they may lack. So I, I'm punting on your question. I just don't know what they can do. The move I came up with for them, and I'm not sure if I like it, and I'm not saying this means that Giannis needs to play center all the time, but if you can turn Brooke Lopez, you have number 32 this year, I think, or is it 31? It might be 31. If you can turn him and number 31 into, and I propose Dante DiVincenzo as well because he's coming off an injury, I'm not sure what his value is, for, into Harrison Barnes, does that move the needle for this team at all, or is that very much like, eh, you're sacrificing two rotation players at that point. Brook Lopez is still valuable. Yes, Barnes allows you to downsize, and he is, you know, I'm not saying P.J. Tucker won't be back, but if you're subbing him in for the P.J. Tucker minutes, like you're getting a lot more offense out of that without losing a ton of juice defensively. No, he's not going to defend Chris Paul. Like, P.J. Tucker can still switch on to that guy. So 
But that's like the biggest move in my mind that I came up with. If you're not going to, you know, trade one of your co-stars in Chris Middleton or, or Drew Holiday, which it's the same situation as CJ McCollum where, and I think both Middleton and Drew Holiday are better than CJ McCollum, but it's like, you're not trading those players and upgrading. If you wanted yeah. to rebuild, yeah, you might be able to get a nice package for them, or you could maybe divest them into role players, which is a tricky proposition unto itself. Yeah, I don't know. I think Barnes is certainly the sort of the type of player that you would, for this series, you can imagine his utility because he's a capable, he's just solid. Like he he's not answer proof. He's not like the individual embodiment of the Suns, but you can use him to do several different things. Like in Dallas, remember, he was kind of an isolation scorer for a while. Like that was very weird. He's been sort of a lower usage role player when he was young. He's been a high, he's sort of settled into very solid multi-dimensional not great at anything but you could give him 40 minutes in a finals game and he's not going to hurt you. like the the bucks need a guy like that because tucker i think tucker's been kind of a zero in this series and i think lopez's utility has been sort of exposed as too niche or too just too finite limited. so yeah finite yeah there, there's there's so there's book i mean i'm looking at devin booker on my notes i said booker barnes is the type of guy they should go after but like if i'm the king's do I want Brooke Lopez and a late pick? And I, I don't know. Maybe you do. Um, this they is, might that's need a sad. My my justification was they might they're going to need a center because Rashawn Holmes is I would guess yeah. is leaving just because they need cap space to resign him, which they don't have. And no, he Brooke Lopez doesn't fit the let's play super fast. But like the Bucks run the floor without him, the Sacramento Kings can do the same. And they wanted DiVincenzo in the Bogdanovich trade. He is one year out from a new contract year, coming off this injury. But I think it's fair value for Barnes, or at least close to it. Maybe there are offers that beat it. Um, so I'm not. But that was just in my mind. Like, that's the big move without blowing anything up. And I don't know that. Because now you do have to. Yeah, you can bank on finding centers on the cheap who are serviceable. But, like, I just don't. Like, does it do enough? I It might. It might not. And it's very unspectacular to me in the sense that I think I would do it. If that was the package. I caught a lot of shit from Bucks fans when I uh, proposed it. And maybe I'm kind of underselling DiVincenzo's value, but like the Bucks aren't going to pay him. Like they're just, it's not going to happen. Although if they're trading for Harrison Barnes, he's making 20 million a year. So, so I would probably do it, but I wouldn't look at the Bucks and be like, we're a much better team. <laughs> well, they're not a much better regular season team because they're thinner and they lose the guy that anchors your defense, which goes a long way, but I think they'd be a better playoff team. And I think, Every year it becomes clearer or we get reminded because we forget over the course of six months of a season, the playoffs are just totally different. You need a totally different set of, you know, sets of skills to succeed there than you do in the regular season. Like ask the jazz, ask, ask the, you know, just, it's, it's just certain things work in the regular season that don't in the playoffs and you need different types of guys to, to, to really get over the top. This is the clickbait section of the podcast. Devin yes. Booker is a top blank player in the NBA. Well, this is the same thing. So I'm going to force you to, I'm going to ruin your clickbait because I'm going to ask several clarifying questions. Um, <laughs> I, I think, uh, so just, if you're just like, oh, here's a, here's an article I'm going to click on, or here's a something on an app. I don't think you can leave him outside. Let's just say like all NBA range. So I don't think you can leave him outside the top 15 anymore. Um, I, I think top 10 is tough, but you could talk me into it because of the value, I think, and I'm going to put a higher value on this than anything because this is the type time of year we're at. Like, he's clearly 
capable of being the first option on a team that's going to win a title. Like that's the hardest thing to get. And he doesn't take anything off the table on defense anymore either. So uh, I don't know what that his, says, but his on ball defense in the playoffs has been, and it's been pretty good all season, but in the playoffs, mm-hmm. like he is guarded. Like they've had him on Middleton. They've had him on drew holiday. They, and that's part of the reason why the Suns can switch themselves when they want to is because Devin Booker is, yeah, the off ball stuff can get weird still. Yep. But he's a, I don't want to say he's a, like a really good on-ball defender, but this is, you know, if you're an A++++++ offensive player who plays C-minus defense, let's just, like, I might even be underrating him there this season. You're a megastar. Like, that's just... Yeah, yeah no. So, like, I, I don't know where you... So, if you kind of group him... I always thought of him sort of in a tier with, like, Donovan Mitchell, Jason Tatum. I feel like Tatum kind of jumped a couple notches ahead of him. Even Jalen Brown now, Jamal Murray when he was healthy... I think I put him, I think Tatum's the only guy I'd even think about taking over him, but like Booker's just proving it right now. So I, I don't know. I, in that class of this, this like next generation of stars that I think are sort of ready to kind of flip the power structure a little bit, um, I think Booker's as good or better than like any of those guys. Clearly better to me than, you know, Murray Mitchell, like that, that, that group. Three quick notes here, the last of which is going to kind of hammer out what the locks if because top 10 was in my mind is do you have a justification to put Devin Booker there a couple numbers that are standing out to me is just I don't know that his passing has received enough recognition uh it, it is now in the playoffs but just in general so he has uh when you <laughs> I'm trying to phrase this because I it's like it is a mouthful but among everyone in the postseason who has averaged at least 20 passes per postseason game and that's a total of 93 players. So among 93 players who have averaged at least 20 passes per postseason game, he ranks fifth in um, assist to, um, oh my God, and pass assist per- to usage, assist to pass percentage adjusted. And that mm-hmm. assist to pass percentage adjusted is the percentage of passes by a player that that are assists, free throw assists, or secondary assists. The only players in front of him are Damian Lillard, Russell Westbrook, Trey Young, and Luka Doncic. And I know he's not his primary ball handler, the primary ball handler. You're like, Chris Paul does a lot of the, he is the primary playmaker for the Suns. But his passes are meaningful. And now anyone who thinks that he's benefiting from the presence of Chris Paul, I, I everyone's benefiting from the presence of Chris <laughs> Paul. But we are now, over the past five seasons, so since his sophomore year, he is averaging 25.1 points, 5.1 assists per game on... 57-6 true shooting percentage. The only other players who are at 25-5 and five on his true shooting percentage during that time are Giannis, James Harden, Dame, Kevin Durant, LeBron, Steph, and Kyrie. So it's seven players, which is, I guess, a semi-large grouping, but they're all just superstars. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to point out that like Devin Booker's body of work supersedes just this season. And when you're looking at the top 10 guys, my locks for the top 10 would be LeBron, Harden, Giannis, Jokic, Luka, Kawhi, Steph, Embiid, and KD are my only locks, and that's nine. And once you get past them, you have Dame, Anthony Davis, you mentioned Jason Tatum. I'm just wondering, like, who else are you putting in front of Booker aside from that, though? Which leads me to believe yeah. that top 15 is the correct answer maybe not the safest because i think people will argue for look you can't argue for jamal murray right now because he's not healthy they will argue for donovan mitchell um 
like I said, Jason Tatum. I'm just like, when I'm looking at just the where would I put him specifically, I think I'd have Dame as my 10th best player, like to round out my 10. And then I'm like, between AD, Tatum, and Booker for 11. And I don't know, like there's a chance that I might put Booker over AD, Booker and Tatum over AD at this point. Well, I mean, the thing is like, and this is going to get very, you know, sports talk radio-y, but in addition to, there's no questioning the statistical company Booker is in. Um, I just, I think I've been more impressed. The shot making is incredible. The skill level is incredible. But like his, he's just tough. Like, and this is such a hacky, like unquantifiable thing, but the toughness that he showed with the broken nose and just the, the level of competitive, it actually sounds like Jeff Van Gundy, like his level of competitiveness. He, he, he just, wants it. I mean, he just wants it. He wants it. He just wants it. <laughs> it's such a cliche, but like, it's undeniable. He, he wants the big shots. There were so many times tonight when the Bucks cut it to like six or seven, and he would just absolutely shred a three. And just with Middleton in his face or with, with just whatever, it's, you know, it's the, it's the silly thing that, you know, smart numbers people will say like, well, that three didn't matter any more than any other points in the game. I don't know. It just, it feels to me like in addition to him proving unequivocally that skill wise, he's an elite basketball player. He's, he's uh, you know, top 10, maybe top 15, I think definitely. Um, he is the type of personality, I think, that you can be very comfortable with as sort of like the head of a snake of a very good team that's going to win a lot. And so, like you said earlier, if and when Chris Paul is no longer a part of the Suns, I think Devin Booker is very capable of being sort of the, you know, the guy who defines the identity of this team. And I think that's the key is what you said, like being the the head of the snake of a really good team is if you're in the top 15, I think that's like the cutoff, maybe close to it. Maybe it's top 12, maybe it's top 20, but that's the territory where, you can be the best player on a title contender. And I think that's what's most important is what he's shown. And so this is going to lead with Grant Hughes of Bleacher Report says, Devin Booker wants it more than Giannis. And that's going to be <laughs> so much more. <laughs> Do you have an adjusted? I had Suns and six to begin this series. I don't know what you had. I know. I think you had Suns. Yeah, I don't remember uh, if I ever made any official predictions. Um, I would have taken the Suns just because I the Giannis injury. Um, but, uh, you know... I think still amazing that he's not their primary problem either. The left knee and it's, I mean, we didn't, yeah, we didn't talk enough about him. I mean, he was incredible tonight. He was the, I mean, he had 20 points in the third quarter. That's just like, I, and he's not all the way there. No, you could tell. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think, I think I don't see it going more than six. I kind of think Phoenix is going to get one of two. I, I think it's, I think I'm going to go Suns in five. I just think, I think the bucks are out of, out of options, out of ideas. And, and, I just don't know where they turn. So I think maybe the Bucks get one uh, just because they're going to be super desperate and the Suns might relax a little bit. I, I'm going to take them in five. I think I'd be with you. I tried not to overreact to game one. I'm it's, very much overreacting it, now. It's hard not to react to game two, but I don't, I don't know that it's overreacting so much as just reacting after everything that we've seen. And so I'd agree with you there. Let's just make this unnatural segue, though, into the most interesting teams over the offseason – you're you're the guest, so the floor is yours. Who is your first team? Well, first I'll just say that almost all of these have the through line of a star that they need to keep happy, which always feels to me like it injects a special level of like urgency for an offseason. Um, I won't take the Knicks. I'll leave them for you. I assume they're on your list. Oh, no, uh, they're uh, – Cavs, well, Space Kings. They're not at the top of my list, but – No. 
They're not. I, I I left them off mine entirely. I thought you'd get there. Um, uh, the first team that that came to mind was the Pelicans, um, which maybe comes as a surprise. But um, that my first line item is what do you do to keep Zion happy? Because I I think even though we've sort of are going off of one report that his family is frustrated, like that's enough for me, especially with New Orleans history of what happens with stars there when there's just the tiniest like wisp of smoke. It always turns out there's a lot of fire. Um, so. You have just all these things to consider. Um, you just fired your coach after one year. Uh, you have Lonzo Ball's restricted free agency. What are you going to pay him? If you do pay him, you're locking yourself into him as your third big salary slot because Zion's going to get his max. Ingram already has his. Or if you pay him above market rates, which is what it might take in this free agent market where there are no marquee free agents and several teams have a lot of money, uh, do you trade Brandon Ingram? So there's those th three things that are all kind of like tied together. Plus, can you do anything to get rid of Eric Bledsoe and Steven Adams, which like you're just Steven not Adams shouldn't even be on this team. I love Steven shouldn't Adams, be on but team. shouldn't be on this team. Certainly should not have gotten an extension. Um, and certainly not for two years and $35 million. Certainly double. Good for him, by the way. But yeah, no, great. Get your money. He seems like an awesome guy, like probably one of the better people and more interesting guys in the league. But, uh, He's not helping them. Josh Hart's a restricted free agent, low key. That kind of matters. I think I could see him getting a big offer from somebody else where the Pelicans have to make a decision. Um, and then sort of in addition to all that, if there's a team that has the ammo to make a really big like Brad Beal trade offer, um, the Pelicans con basically control the Lakers and Bucks drafts for like the next half decade. And they have their own picks. So if you want to throw 57 first rounders in plus Brandon Ingram plus whatever into a deal for a, a star, like that's on the table too. They can put an offer out there that's going to beat almost anybody's. So their war chest is like overflowing. They have all these crazy competing incentives with all their most important players. So I just, and, and who knows with this leadership structure. Oh, that's the other thing. The last thing is David Griffin has to know that if he doesn't get this right, like he's gone because they just fired the coach and the next step is always the decision yeah. maker above him. So there's a lot happening with New Orleans. I just I think they're kind of a tinderbox that could be really exciting this offseason. And look, there's I don't care about teams paying the tax, but it is a reality in this situation where especially now the Pelicans aren't going to pay the tax. Mm -hmm. I have them at thirty seven, roughly thirty seven point eight million dollars away from the tax. The, the restricted free agent cap holes of Lonzo Ball and Josh Hart are about 37.5. And so if you believe that they could get 37.5 between the two of them, I'm not ruling it out. If someone no. tries tries to throw Lonzo, his max is 27.5. If someone throws him, you know, 20 million a year, like, or 25 million, then yeah, you're going to get, you're going to get like there. So you're all of a sudden going to be grappling with the tax and what do you do? Are you going to give up draft equity just to get off of Steven Adams or Eric Bledsoe? Because you're not really in a position to do that either. That doesn't make you, you know, are you a better team if you just get rid of Eric Bledsoe or Steven Adams? Maybe, but it's marginally. Like, there needs to be a talent acquisition happening here. And I just don't know how they do that. Maybe there's a trade where if you include enough draft equity, you can also get off one of those contracts. I think everyone would still point to Miles Turner would be an ideal fit for a team like this. Yeah, they're absolutely interesting. I just wonder if, you know, and I would imagine he does now. David Griffin has the guts to make, a, let's say, if Dame becomes available or if Bradley Beal becomes available. 
Uh, I don't know if a Zach Levine would do it for them. He would be interesting here, but like, I, I don't know. Uh, the fact that you're now kind of on the hot seat, you're probably not going to care as much about all those, you know, the Lakers 2024 pick with the right to defer to 2025. You're not going to care about those distant Milwaukee swaps because you're on such the hot seat. So maybe they are right there to make the the bigger move. There's also the, you know, you, you mentioned the tinderbox, tinderbox aspect of this. What if they just like don't let Lonzo Ball leave and they didn't get anything for him? I assume that that's, not on the table because then you trade him at the deadline. At the same time, as I just mentioned, would it be outside the realm of possibility to see the Knicks be like, hey, here's 22, 25 million a year? I don't know. I don't think they should do that, but I think they could. And well, I mean, functionally they could. They have the cap space. But like I just don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. And so what do you do? Do you just match it and then hope that that's a tradable contract later or you cut costs elsewhere? There's a lot of moving parts here. And my guess would be that both, like one of Josh Hart Alonzo Ball is probably going to leave unless their markets somehow crater and are lower than we expect. And so you might be losing a really good player. And that's just, it's a very combustible situation they're in because they still haven't made the play-in tournament. This was a team on paper where they were supposed to at least compete for that. So here's here's sort of a weird paradox that they have to deal with. Like I think the Zion thing gives them an immense amount of urgency, right? Uh, because they disappointed, and uh, he clearly to me looks like a franchise cornerstone superstar. Like he's ready to be very very good right now. Um, so there's urgency, but there's also this idea that that just kind of occurs to me that. Like we just talked about Devin Booker, right? Devin Booker's 24. I think maybe like for the first four of the six years of his career, we were kind of like, eh, I don't know. Like, but guys get better. And the guys on this team that are good are very young. So if you had the luxury of patience, you could assume that a new coach that the players actually like might get a little more buy-in defensively and otherwise from Zion, from Brandon Ingram, from Lonzo if he stays. And they could just absolutely organically get way better next year. But like you can't go back in, you can't go into next season with the same roster for all the reasons we talked about. Like there's just, it's going to be too difficult to sell that. So it's funny how like the best course might be patience, but they just don't, I don't think that's an option for them. Yeah. And I'm just, I don't have any feel for what they're going to do. I think, They'll probably keep or sign and trade Lonzo. Like maybe there's a team that doesn't have cap space he wants to go to, and then it's mutually beneficial for everyone to work out a deal. I just don't have a, you know, I came up with a, and I don't even have it in front of me. Maybe I should have, maybe I should have brought it up, but like a three team trade where they gave up uh, number 10, Eric Bledsoe and Nikhil Alexander Walker and some other like stuff. Oh, it was the Lakers 2022 pick and then a second rounder. And they got Steven Adams off that center and they got Miles Turner back. And I just don't know if that's a move that's like too mm. big for them. Is it because it's it's a weird time where you don't want to necessarily make a, a I don't want to say an all in play because that's not what that was, but a, a very buy heavy play mm-hmm. because you might not be good enough. Yeah. And so it's so confusing. That's why they're interesting. That's fair. I think my team, <laughs> first team, is going to surprise you a little bit. I have the Jazz. Okay. So, oh, I get it. Let's hear it. I think you can very much make the case that they, again, go further in the playoffs if Donovan Mitchell isn't dealing with his ankle injury because that was clearly a thing for him. If they had Mike Conley for most of that series against the Clippers, uh, 
my whole thing is, I think what's become clear is that even though their offense is going to be fine, they still need that wing stopper. It doesn't need to be an all-defense guy, but they're a Jay Crowder short, it feels like, of being really matchup-proof in the playoffs because there are... I don't view Rudy Gobert as a liability really ever. Like There are matchups like the Clippers where what he does best is not enough to overcome the deficiencies on the wing in front of him. And that's a big problem with going small is that Utah's perimeter guys, they're not going to keep a lot of these other opponents in front of them. And that seems where they're hurt most. And so there's that element of, can you get that wing type defender? And then I also think they do need the option to play small themselves. That's the direction the league has gone in. And so whether it's getting a wing stopper who can also give you those small ball minutes um, or it's, that's a separate player, it's probably a separate player because that like, there's only so many Jay Crowders out there and the Suns aren't just throwing Jay Crowder at the five willy nilly themselves anyway. I don't know how they get there. Looming over all of this, by the way, is the specter of Mike Conley's free agency. The Athletics, Tony Jones reported that they're going to do whatever they can to re-sign him. And I don't view Mike Conley as someone who needs to go to a, a sexier market, but he could just want to play on a different team. Like, I think that that's eminently possible. He didn't choose to be in Utah. So if he leaves, you're screwed. If he comes back, I think you have a real conversation about, I know people have mentioned Joe Ingles as the per- guy they could trade. I think you look at moving Jordan Clarkson when his value is at its apex or a Boyan Bogdanovich who, you know, he hit 50% of his pull-up triples in the playoffs, but I, I still, one of the, I think you can get away if Mike Conley's coming back of moving either one of those two. And the name I circled for them is if Josh Richardson opts into Dallas, is there a move to be made there? Where is it Boyan Bogdanovich for Maxi Kleba and Josh Richardson? Or is it Jordan Clarkson, Derek Favors, and number 30 for Josh Richardson and Maxi Kleba. Is there that type of framework there? There might not be. Dallas may not want to help out a rival, and I'm not sure how much better off Dallas is with that trade, but they do seem incredibly low on Richardson. But I just don't know what the move is. And again, I'm not certain. And I don't. it hasn't just come out that he's likely to stay in Utah. I just don't know what's going to happen with Mike Conley's free agency. And if he leaves, you really are in trouble. Because I also think, and we saw this in the playoffs while he was out, He's kind of mission critical to keeping Rudy Gobert involved in the offense. Yeah, no, I think I, I keep leaning back on, I forget when it happened, but, you know, there was, I think it was probably Tony Jones uh, in The Athletic. Uh, there's a Mike Conley interview, and he, all, you know, he talked about how much he loved, him and his family loved Salt Lake City and how they wanted to stay. And so anytime I talk about oh, Mike Conley's free agency or whatever, I always lean back on that. Well, he likes it there, so he's going to stay, but, like, what's he going to say I, I want to get out of here as soon as I possibly can you know it's not it's ridiculous the 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 sort of there's there's kind of uh, it before you start thinking about well what can the Jazz do to improve the roster via trade assuming Conley comes back a Conley return on a deal on a market rate contract whatever that ends up being if it's like 25 a year you know it could, it could be more than that like Kyle Lowry got I think three for 90 a couple of years a few on his last one so and Mike Conley's Maybe, only that, 33. There's, I feel like right, people think only. he's as old as Chris Paul, but he's he's only 33. But so if you're going to do that, and I think they sort of have to because you can't replace him with – you have no space to get anyone else from the outside. Um, unless they're comfortable going way into the tax, you have to potentially move some of your, your mid-tier salary, one or two of your mid-tier salary guys. So like the guys you're talking about, Ingles, Clarkson, Favors – um, I don't think O'Neal makes enough to really move the needle. You might have to essentially salary dump one of those guys. 
Like, I think that's a realistic possibility too. And that only further uh, complicates the idea that the, the very necessary task of like, we got to update this roster so we don't flame out in the playoffs. I, I think they clearly need a wing stopper. I think I was working on something the other week and he's not a wing stopper. He's been overrated in this regard, but someone like Robert Covington would make sense in a scenario like they faced against the Clippers where you, you know, you need guys that can scramble around. And if you're not going to shut down a guy that you're switched onto, that's at a different position, maybe you deflect a pass and you just derail the possession and Covington can do that. So I think someone that sort of injects a little more sort of like, well, sort of meets the chaos of small ball with his own brand of like disruptive defensive chaos. Like that would make sense to me, but what are you going to give the Blazers for Covington? I I don't know. Um, But yeah, they clearly need to upgrade and they've got all these other financial concerns that are really going to complicate that. I thought about Derek Jones Jr. too. If he opts in, could you do a Derek Favors or Derek Jones Jr. swap? They make about the same amount of money. And Portland, whether or not they keep Nurk, could use another big. But Favors, his salaries, you have to view him as an asset. He, I think he looks more overpaid in Utah because he's playing like a – like that's a 10-minute role to play behind Rudy Gobert yeah. on most nights. But Derek Jones Jr. at least gives you like some more pizzazz on defense. Yeah, I, I agree. I do think – I think Favors – just doesn't have a place on the roster if they're trying to win a title because those 10 minutes a game just don't matter and they're duplicative in the playoffs when the only reason you're not going to have Rudy Gobert on the court for the vast majority of the time is if you just want to be smaller and favors does not help you in that Which, regard. Which, again, I think they need the option of going because they don't have that right now. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I probably am not as concerned about as you, I think they'll pay whatever in tax money next year. I think it's moving forward after that if they don't win a title or flame out in the playoffs again. They paid the tax this year. They were $3.3 million into the tax about. They have, as of right now, they're... Well, that's not including Mike Conley's hold. So, like, if you bring back Mike Conley, you're going to be a tax team. That's what I'm saying. You're gonna, They're going to be, like, it's new ownership, maybe. And, they, and you they're, know. they're at the tax now, basically. So, yeah, that is yeah. that is different from paying $3 million in tax. But I think we'll probably see a favors dump. In that scenario, I don't know. You can, first of all, can't be O'Neal. He's the closest you come to having a wing stopper, so you can't even trade him for another wing stopper. But because right. you just you need him, and he just he's on such a team friendly deal, you can't afford to get rid of him. So, is there something that I mean? Is there anyone in free agency who can move the needle for them when they're like, will they even use their mini MLE if they bring back Conley? I thought about Nick Batum, just you know, maybe him and Gobert are chill, and he you know he's still getting paid from Charlotte, but he might not want to leave Los Angeles. He's someone who. I wouldn't call him the wing stopper, but he helps you. He defended a, a crap ton of tough assignments for the Clippers, and he gives you the option of going small in certain instances. It's probably not as fruitful as it was in LA, though, because he was also playing those minutes with like a Marcus Morris and a Paul George and a Kawhi at points. And just there aren't, that's the other trade off here is that going small in Utah is different from going small elsewhere because there's not like this comprehensive perimeter defense in front of you. Gobert is that defensive system. And which is a testament to Gobert, but it also puts the Jazz in some precarious spots. Yeah, I agree. Who do you have next? <sighs> Who do I want to talk about? Should we just talk about the Warriors? Is that interesting enough? I didn't we... pick them first because I assumed they were coming for you. Yeah, I mean, so I feel like we've talked about them so much over the course of the year that we're, the only real changes are they have. we know they have the 7th and 14th picks now. Um, but like just to run down, so again... I think it's less of a concern than, say, the Zion issue in New Orleans or even like Luka in Dallas. Uh, but you've got Steph Curry, 
you, you don't need to keep him happy, so to speak, because I don't think he's the type of guy that he's just different. He's not going to. You know, I wish he was the type of guy to do that just because I'm tired of seeing this front office kind of skate by. That's my right. That's right. my spicy take. No, that's not wrong. Uh, but 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 he is how he is. And and so I think and he's extension eligible, by the way, for just an absurd deal this this offseason. So I don't think that's going to be like even a conversation. I think he's just going to get it. Um, but then so you've got seven, you've got 14, you've got James Wiseman, you've got Andrew Wiggins. That's your some some combination of those pieces are your theoretical ways to get a, an upgrade on the Wiggins salary slot. Another, you know, a, a big name, whoever those even are. I don't know. Like Damian Lillard would be fun and interesting and be like Brooklyn West. Like it doesn't make any sense, but the talent should work type of thing. Uh, Bradley Beal is never on the table. Uh, I Ben Simmons. Can you play Ben Simmons and Draymond Green? I don't know how. Um, but so you have that the, the trade the whole trade thing. Then you have the possibility of like, well, well, they what if they just use the picks and they, you know, suddenly you've got James Wiseman, whatever he ends up becoming, seven fourteen. Jordan Poole is a rotation player now. We proved that. Like you have this kind of interesting young core that could be the bridge to the post Curry era, but like that doesn't do anything to keep Curry happy and contending now. So is there a Kelly Oubre sign and trade? I just like there's all these weird little components. Um, but I guess I come back to, you know, we talked about this probably even before the season where I didn't feel like then that there was a single move out there that would get the Warriors into surefire contending status. That was, you know, a realistic move. And I kind of still feel that way. So I think that's sort of a bummer to sort of have as the cloud overhanging all of the sort of interesting stuff they could do this off season. But you're going to have to talk me out of there being one big swing deal they could make that would demonstrably, you know, they didn't even make the playoffs this year, by the way, like that would elevate them all the way up to, you know, returning to contender status. I would be interested in Pascal Siakam, even though the fit oh, with, that, with Draymond one. isn't clean, clean. And that's been talked about, you know, that's not an yeah. original idea. For me, I think Bradley Beal is still the move if he becomes available. Um, what's been interesting is seeing it from, and so there's so many layers to unpack here. Joe Lacob has mentioned like that there's a limit to how much they'll spend on this roster. And so it's like the Kelly Oubre Jr. sign and trade is intriguing because he clearly doesn't want to be in Golden State. He basically said as much on that Chris Haynes podcast. He wasn't happy with his demotion to the bench this year. But also, when you look at the free agency landscape, you don't see the team that's giving Kelly Oubre Jr. a ton of money. And so a sign-and-trade might be a way for him to get more money than usual if you're sending him to a team that's going to actually play him. But are you willing to... And that makes more sense because it does seem that the Warriors and Warriors fans are, I would say, overly attached to Andrew Wiggins at this point. I get it. He was valuable for you this season. He played fantastic defense. I think he's going to be even better on offense. People have... You know, they say he was a similar player on offense, maybe slightly more efficient. His role is going to be more streamlined because Klay Thompson is coming back. And so now you're going from a number three to a number four. And imagine if you're the number four on a team where your number three option in Draymond Green isn't afraid to shoot at the rim. So, like, I think his role gets easier, which will help him. He is still owed. Two years and $65 million for Andrew Wiggins is a bad contract from a team perspective. So No I, question. If you want to move Andrew, like, I just wouldn't be attached to Andrew Wiggins. Now, that being said, I get because they're so light on wings that unless you're trading for a wing, which of all the names we listed, Beal, Siakam, 
Uh, if you throw Levine in there, they're not wings. And so I get that you want to keep Andrew Wiggins. So then you need Kelly Uber Jr. sign and trade to help you get to matching money. And then you need owner uh, team governors to actually want to pay more for this team because you're taking on money then. You're not making lateral move when looking at your payroll. It does seem like what I will say, my guess would be that they don't do anything at this point because it doesn't seem like, and I would agree with this move, they're not just going to trade you know, number seven for Marcus Smart. That's not something they're going to do. And that's fine. I would agree with going that route. What I think they need to do or what they could do is can you lower your sights a little bit where you're not getting Beal for this, but what's the name where you have to give up two of seven, 14 Wiseman and Wiggins rather than three or all, or, or all four, excuse me. To that end, I have a trade to throw at you. It's predicated on an, mm. a Kelly Oubre Jr. sign and trade, number seven, number 14, their 2022 first round pick unprotected, and they can do this after the draft. So, Steppy and Rulers, we're fine. This is happening after the draft because I'm using the picks as salary in this. 2023 first round swap with top three protection, and then a 2026 first round pick, top 10 protected because you, for some reason, owe a top four protected 2024 first to Memphis, that Andre Godala salary. Oh, that I, I get the thinking, but like it had to be cheaper to get off of Andre Godala. I could have like, so I agree. Well, I want to count. Am I counting right that there are essentially five first round picks involved here? Okay. Like seven, 14. First of all, first of all, no. Because okay. a swap is not a pick. A swap is a swap. I get right. this from, but you, it's it's four first round picks, Kelly Oubre Jr. and a swap. Okay. And you're getting back Zach Levine. That's not doing it for me. You've I, gotten I to think... keep Wiggins and James Wiseman in this scenario. <laughs> is my point. You're protected against disaster in 2026 if you're bad. And I think this year's picks lost a little cachet because okay, they're too like. What would, are you going to, like, let's take out the 2023 swap then, or you could take out the, you know, if it's one fewer first round pick, are you doing that? Because like, you're not, Zach Levine is really good. And if you're not willing to give up seven and 14 and at least two additional things, a pick and a swap or two more, like you're not getting, like you're then just commit to not doing anything would be my point. Yeah. Well, I may I may be ready to make that commitment following these uh, questions. Uh, is <laughs> I'm going to have to max out Zach Levine though. Zach Levine right? is good, and Zach Levine is 25. Is he 26? But so I, I realized that this. So we just it's we 26. just have been drooling drooling over Devin Booker, and I think a lot of the criticisms of Devin Booker previously sort of apply to Levine, like good stats, bad team guy, a little different because Levine like demonstrably plays no defense and is a shit passer, um, even though he gets a lot of assists. Um, I would push still. back against the passing thing a little bit. He got oh better man, I don't know. I, I, I think he's like a, I think those are a lot of empty assist numbers, but that, that's not neither here nor there. Um, I think if my choices are that or do nothing, I'm not doing it because I don't want to pay Levine max money um, and I don't think he gets me to where I want to be to the point that I'm willing to sacrifice like so many different bites at the apple to get someone that like how many shots am I giving up to get a player that might be on balance as valuable as Zach Levine and for the, for the version of Zach Levine that cost me a hundred and some odd million dollars. 
Like, if, I don't, I, I don't know. Is there an out, is there a framework of that trade that you would do if we took out 2026? I mean, can I just tra- can I just trade like Wiggins for Levine? <laughs> can we just do that? That is not. But would you do like the the Siakam framework that was thrown out? There was basically seven Wiseman and Wiggins. I think was like the deal for yeah. Siakam. You'd do that. I I think I'd, I'd be more likely to do that. I think. Um, I don't know. I'm not in love with that one either. Yeah. I look. We're, so, I just kept so you Wiggins happened? and Wiseman, and you're you're out here complaining. <laughs> Yeah, I think probably it's because I just haven't come off my original stance of like, there's not a move that makes them a contender. So as long as Steph isn't, uh, you know, setting the building on fire to get out of there, I think I think part of that is just like, you got your rings, like, I'm satisfied with that. Um, This is me turning back into a fan of the Warriors, which like, if you've heard me on here before, I guess you should probably know that. But uh, I don't know. I, I just... Unless unless it's just like a complete no brainer where it's like who so who Bradley Beal really wants to come there isn't there isn't like there Dame's isn't not there even the no brainer just looking at his age and like that fit with Steph is good luck on defense. Yeah. You know what the problem? I think the Nets have maybe are going to maybe like indirectly create some really screwed up and terrible rosters because people are going to see like they just threw these guys together. It made no sense. There was no chance this was going to work, and then it worked. And so now it's like, wow, Damon and Steph could totally play together. Just look at the talent. Like th- there's going to be some guys that there's going to be some copycats that really flame out. No, I don't know. You can't talk me into trading all the Warriors picks. I don't think. Sorry. What about for Kyrie? And you're trading Draymond. Draymond picks for Kyrie. There's probably a third nope. team because the Nets don't want picks. Nah, I don't want. I don't want Kyrie and, and Steph in the same locker room. That's fair not, enough. Not into it. Your presser time. Let me move on to my next team to see if we can cut through a couple more really quickly. I have the Sacramento Kings. Okay. This is not a car crash theory either. They're just approaching a point where it's like, hey, you need to commit to a direction because this whole in-betweenness or worse, I feel like their fans deserve better at this point. And you are approaching a natural pivot with, we met, I, I think we mentioned Rashawn Holmes in this podcast. They have mm-hmm. early bird rights on him, which... To boil it down essentially means they could pay him around $10.3 million to start, or they need to use cap space to resign him. I think he gets more than $10.3 million in free agency on a longer-term deal. So I don't think it's a like a, hey, we'll give you the mid-level for four years. Yeah, agree. Um, and will they create cap space to get him? And at what cost does that cap space come? And are you a better team, a worse team, because you subtracted talent? They, to me, are at a point where they need to look at fe- what Phoenix did with Chris Paul. Maybe they look at what Toronto did with Kawhi back in the day. OKC did with Paul George. Do they swing for a star trade? Because they have number nine in this year's draft. They have all their own future first. They have Harrison Barnes. They have Buddy Heald. So they have like salary matching tools of intriguing players. You have Tyrese Halliburton, of course. I would only trade him for like, you need to be getting a top 20 player back if you're trading Tyrese Halliburton to me. But you have stuff. So can you make that move? And if you can't, or if you're unwilling to, Burn it down. Tyrese Halliburton, De'Aaron Fox, everybody else, and number nine. Everybody else has to go. And I think I'm curious to see what they do, or will they do historically what the Kings have done and tread water? And I don't know what they're leaning towards because they made that DeLon Wright trade, and it's like, what was that really aimed at? Because as of right now, if they come back, they're fully healthy, add in the number nine pick, maybe you make a nice mid-level addition. I don't even know if you're better 
Because what's happening with Rashawn Holmes? What does your center rotation look like at this point? So I think they need to commit to a direction. And I think that I, I have an inkling that they will. It's probably an uneducated inkling, but I think that there's, they do something seismic one way or the other, where it's go after a win-now guy. Maybe it ends up being the wrong win-now guy. But maybe they make that trade. And I think that they have, I think just do it, do it. You've seen these other teams in non-glamour markets get after it, do the same thing. Um, or tear it down, just b- burn it all down and rebuild around Fox, Halliburton, and number nine. And I don't think that's an so, oversimplification yeah. either because the Kings are just, I call it the sub-middle of the NBA. That's where they are. They're not firmly in the middle. They're in the sub-middle where if things break right, hey, yeah. you could imagine them getting six, no, maybe seven, eight in the West or making the play-in, but not do much else. No, and and they're a first round out no matter what. Just I mean, based on the talent. I, so what do you? I agree. And the problem I think a problem is that every year that the playoff drought extends, the sort of the desire to end it and just let God let's win forty four games and like sneak in. I think grows and and it's like that's the plan. That has been the plan like for a very obviously they would like to be better than that. But I think that is a success. If the, if they, you know, this is this is how you end up with Harrison Barnes making twenty million a year. This is how you pay Buddy Heald eighty four over five or four or whatever it is ninety six with incentives. Um, you're like any reasonable talent that they come across, they just like, oh, we got to keep this guy because we got to try to make playoffs. What do you think their best asset is that they would actually trade? So Fox is out, Halliburton is out. Is it that ninth pick? Because yeah. is it Harrison Barnes? It's that, or is it a future Kings pick? Because you bank on the Kings Kingsing. So, so how is yeah? So it, I'm I, not even know, trying to troll the Kings the here. Pivot. Like, no, yeah, of course. Like that, no, that's my thought. Is like the Kings can't trade their first rounders. Like they need those. They're going to be really great picks. Like you can't, you know. But if yeah, I don't know. I I, I think so Siakam because we were just talking about him comes strikes me as an interesting guy. But I don't know if nine. I guess nine and a future Kings pick and you throw Barnes in there as the bulk of the salary match. Um, you have Bagley that's too. Interesting. On an expiring. Does anyone, is Bagley valuable? Okay. So like, does he have positive trade value? No. Oh, hell no. That's not positive trade value, but I think he has hope. And yeah, 11.3 for a year is overpriced for him now, but it's for a year. You could let him walk if it doesn't work out. And the other thing is he showed flashes towards the end of last season, and I'm still clinging to what he did towards the end of his rookie year before we started dealing with injuries and you know the oddball Kings rotation, just showing a lot of catch-and-shoot range, nice little floor game, confident in taking those turnaround shots. I think that, you know, the, I didn't even think, but I like if Toronto decided to hit restart, like if you had, like, let's say Bagley, nine, 20, Robert Woodard, throw him in there, the wing, and then a 2022 first for Siakam. Do you need to give another first? Can you protect it? I would consider it for Siakam. That's, you know, the other trade I thought of, and I guess maybe this straddles too far in between, but I do think if he's healthy, it would address their defense, was Marvin Bagley, Robert Woodard, number nine, a lotto protected 2022 for Jonathan Isaac. Oh, I'm all in on on teams taking a huge swing on Isaac. I mean, I think that's someone that everyone that has like high risk tolerance should be going for. And I would do that in a heartbeat if I'm the Kings, I think. I think I would too. I don't know if it's necessarily I'm I'm talking about, hey, you you need to pick a direction and I feel like that might be too straight too far towards the middle, but at the same time, 
if he can make your defense and between mm-hmm. him and Barnes, if you sign a cheapo center, like you could do a lot of different things defensively. So I, the, the one other thing is um, I don't know how many people are lower on Bagley than I am, like, or have been lower from the start, but it says something that even, even I right now feel like the best course for the Kings is, you know, you got to see if year four for Bagley is the year he figures it out. Like you just, you, you're, you cannot trade him for value now, I don't think. And it's like, he's had so many chances. He's been hit by injuries. I don't have any faith that he has like an actual serviceable position to play in the modern NBA. Uh, but like, I think he's super critical to the team this year because they just don't have, I mean, Fox, I think Fox could, I always think Fox is ready to take a leap. He could be an all-star. Halliburton, we're both high on, but I think Bagley just like you sort of have to give him another shot, give him a ton of minutes that he hasn't earned and hope that this is the year. And like, that's such a bleak, that's a bleak spot to be in. It's bleak, but also they're kind of there. If Rashawn Holmes leaves, like they don't just like, they're not overwhelmed with all these bigs. Like, yeah, they can sign some for the mid level or or cheaper. But if you lose Rashawn Holmes, your center on this roster is Chemezi Metu. Like, Yeah, you're. I mean, you bring back Hassan Whiteside for another minimum deal. I, yeah. I think this is this is the sad thing. Like Holmes was really good for them, uh, and an incredible value at five million last year. But like, if he makes twelve, debatable if that's a value contract. Just oh, twelve is fine. The type of center he is. If it's like fifteen, if it's that, eighteen, then yeah. it's like now you've made a mistake. You can't. You just can't do it with, with as good as he is at what he does. The things that he does just aren't aren't good enough to justify you know, big money. Do you have time to blow through another team each? I do. Okay. Let's do, let's do Dallas. Um, and again, this is how do you keep Luka Doncic from getting more pissed off? Cause it seems like every report that came out is he it, was mad at somebody. I wonder if he and Zion are going to be case studies and how much power guys on rookie deals or signing their second contracts actually have, because no, I don't think they're not going to sign those deals, but Doncic is going to sign right. his this summer. But like, our team's already starting to worry about them leaving, even though they have four or five years left on their contract. Well, do you remember, I feel like it was a couple years ago when uh, this was a conversation we were having about Carl Anthony Towns, not you and I, but a conversation was being had where uh, the Wolves have just messed everything up. It was before they got Russell, which was clearly just to appease Towns. And it was like, if he did, and he had already been maxed out or he'd signed it, maybe it hadn't even kicked in yet. And what happens if Carl Town says, you, I, I want out of here? And I think maybe it was on a low post podcast or something. And the thought was that the Wolves would say like, no, sorry, you you, you can just sit down and not play. Uh, you're, we are not trading you. Now the clock's moved up even more because these guys aren't even, you know, we've moved two years up. So I, I agree. I think the Dallas situation is a little different than New Orleans because New Orleans like, sorry, but it's been it's a backwater NBA team, right? Like their attendance is always among the lowest. It's just like you're in SEC football country. You're not going to be the biggest game in town. They all they do is lose their best players. That's different. Dallas is, you know, certainly had very high profile problems in the management side of things. Um, but it seems to be a functional on court operation, and they tend to be pretty good. So at least you have that working for you. But like. Luca doesn't seem to be happy with anybody that was in a position of power. So that's overhanging all of this. Jason Kidd is your coach now. That's fun. What, like, what? Fun. Yeah, that's what, a way to what put is it. That, what does that do? Yeah, fun, 
big quotes around fun, uh, like terrible decision. But um, so you so you does that attract players? Do guys want to come play for Jason Kidd? I don't know. The, the the sort of nitty gritty of all this then is like, is this the summer Dallas makes a move before they have to deal with Doncic's extension kicking in? Uh, is there a Porzingis trade out there? What are you going to do with Tim Hardaway Jr.'s unrestricted free agency? Josh, Josh Richardson has a player option. There's a path for them, theoretically, to clear enough money to go get a Kyle Lowry or someone in that like sub, slightly sub-max They're probably tier. the biggest threat to Conley, I feel like, right, for some reason. I don't know why, but just like he's well, played yeah, in Utah, if, he's played in Memphis, go to Dallas. <laughs> if, if you're in for Lowry, you're in for Conley. It's like, you know, if, if that's your type, that's your type. They're not, you know, it's kind of the same idea. Um but the timing thing is is interesting to me because the free agent crop is way better next year. There's a ton of like, now that's a number two to Luca, which we agree now, and you are way ahead on this. Porzingis is not and has never been. So your shot is next offseason. Think if that's what you're going for, or do you need to do something now because Luca is getting a little antsy? I don't know. There's just a lot of competing concerns uh, with again the you know. The one thing you can never do as a franchise is drive your best player and your, you know, generational talent out of town. And like, that's a like low key risk if things don't go great over this offseason and the next one. Yeah. And there's the I think it was John Hollinger and Nate Duncan posed this question. I don't necessarily like looking at players in these terms, but it was basically would they asked, would you rather have Tim Hardaway Jr. or your, you know, 18 to 25 million in cap space? And I just I look at the free agent market and I, I honestly don't know. If it's if you're gonna get a Lowry or a Conley, the answer is pretty easy. But how likely are you to get those guys when you've never hit, you know, have you ever hit a triple in free agency? <laughs> they've tried Forget to home runs. Yeah, they've tried to swing for homers. And I wouldn't call those guys a homer, like homers necessarily because of their age and what they'll cost, but you know, and there are other things they could do if you want to maybe keep Hardaway is I don't think he'll cost. I mean, if they end up paying him $19 million a year like he made this year, that's tough. But if you can, if Josh Richardson opts out, because $11.6 million is like right on the cusp. I don't know who wants to pay him that right now, but there's a dearth of wings available. And in theory, we're dating back two years now, but in theory, he could make shots off the dribble. In theory, he can hit threes. And he wasn't great on defense this year, but in theory, he could defend one through four. So maybe he opts out and that gives you more wiggle room. Do you grease the wheels of a Dwight Powell salary dump? So you could maybe keep Tim Hardaway Jr. and add these other guys, but then it's like, well, have you then steered way too far into offense? And is it, you know, if it's Tim Hardaway Jr. and Mike Conley or Kyle Lowry's your offseason and you've burned some equity because you dumped Josh Richardson, you've dumped Dwight Powell, like are those the moves that elevate you to title contention? I don't, I don't know maybe because i do think that putting any kind of secondary shot creator around luka Doncic goes a long way just because we've seen how dangerous the Mavs can be at the beginning of series when it's just him <laughs> he just seems to peter out towards the end I, I they might come close but it's it feels the collateral damage that would be involved it just feels like it's not worth it but then i'm like okay well are you worried about keeping josh richardson or tim hardaway jr why am i overthinking this so I, I'm fascinated by their offseason too because I don't know what they do. And it seems like a big trade is out of the question unless they move Porzingis. And I don't know how much value he has at three years, $101.5 million left. I think he's probably more intriguing than a Kemba Walker at two years and 73, whatever he's at. 
but that's yeah. also not saying much. It just took the yeah. number 16 pick essentially to grease the wheels of a Kemba Walker dump. And you still have to take back an Al Horford who's good, but like that contract is weird. Like he has like half guarantee in the final season. So it's like, do we pay Al Horford $14 million to go away? Or do we just eat him at 27 or whatever he's on the books for in that final year? Which is 20, 26, five. I was, I was close. It, it shouldn't be like, look, just looking at, well, what, what do the Mavs do? What, what, you know, what are their options? Like it, it feels bizarre that there's urgency. Cause like this shouldn't be hard. You, you already did the hard part. You got, you know, the best under 25 player in the league. And that can just do everything hey, can hey. be your entire like Trey and Aiton have both been to the conference finals <laughs> yeah. or beyond. Luca has not right. What's <laughs> Luca? What's Luca ever done? Like, but it shouldn't be hard. And it feels like Dallas has kind of, I don't know. I, I just, so in answer to your first question or that you were, you brought up like, well, what's better 18 to whatever, 22, 25 million in cap space or Tim Hardaway jr. The answer is it depends. And it depends on, well, what's what what free agent crop are we talking about like what what's out there this summer i don't know like i think you said like i don't know what that money's going to get you that's a significant upgrade that isn't going to tie up a bunch of money next off season because i do think like we've seen that it can be a mistake to build your long-term plans around a particular off season where you think a particular free agent Giannis, is going to be available and then he's not so like Oh, I want us. We will, everybody wants to save cap space for 2022 because you know that's it's going to be a better crop. Whatever, like a little risky, but it is clear that as of now, the free agents that might be available then are better. So if you're Dallas, is there a balloon deal you can give someone? Like not really, because you can't a one year deal because you can't really like. What's the point of paying Tim Hardaway Jr. like a whole bunch of money on like a one plus one where it's a team option on this? Like, what's that get you? You're not getting appreciably better, and Luke is good enough to help you contend right now so uh i don't know the, the timing part of this again is like the most fascinating aspect of it because i just don't know how they kind of thread the needle of we need to contend next year because luca's ready but then we also want to be able to contend for five more so that he stays happy i, I don't know what the answer is well and the other thing is too is that luca Doncic is going to be on his supermax so it's i don't know why you'd conserve room that you're not going to have between him and Kristaps Porzingis, not next season, but the season after, you're looking at more than right. $60 million of commitments right there. And so, plus Dwight Powell, you're over 70. Um, I'm assuming you bring back Kleba at nine. That's 80. Like, cap space very quickly goes out the window. And I'm assuming you want to keep Dorian Finney-Smith. Cap holds 7.6. You know, there's you're not going to get max room. You'll have to move Porzingis. And so, I would be, I'm a big fan of create cap space when you need it. So, if, if there's good players to bring in on multi-year deals do it. I just don't know what this team, the quality of talent gets them with the money that they'll have to spend. And I still don't have an answer to, would you rather have, if that's the choice, the full breadth of your cap spending power or Tim Hardaway Jr. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, what are you going to pay to bring JJ Redick back? <laughs> oh, that, that's, the real, that's the real question. <laughs> um, final team. And I'm not picking the Knicks, by the way, they were on my list but they were not one of my top three teams because I don't think they're going to be uninteresting, but I think it's very much going to be they're going to sign short-term deals and kick the can into 2022, 2023. And it okay. also wouldn't surprise me if like they didn't sign Julius Randle to the, I think he could get like four. I have all my cap sheets up. I should just scroll to their tab, but like he can get like four one Oh six is the max extension he could get or four one Oh three. Um, I think that's probably a 
from a team's perspective, I hope Julius Randle gets all the money. I wouldn't give him that. Four one hundred makes me a little uncomfortable. Four ninety would probably be more my range, but that's I want him to get paid. So I just don't think they're going to do anything. I don't think they're going to throw out like a huge offer seed to a John Collins or Alonzo Ball. I don't think they're going to be involved in Kawhi. Um, maybe Kawhi and Dame all of a sudden decide they want to play in New York, but it's very much <laughs> like, yeah, they'll be on the prowl for a blockbuster trade if it comes. Otherwise, they're going to maintain their flexibility. I don't see them getting super reckless over the long term, which is why they don't interest me in a good way. I just want the Knicks to be normal. As every, <laughs> everyone who listens to this podcast knows, deadingly disenchanted Knicks fan is what I count myself as. I just want a normal team. I have the Raptors, number four in the lottery. Kyle Lowry's entering free agency. Masai Ujiri, I think his contract is up right now, but he's still working Mm -hmm. for the team. So does he get like a per diem of a million dollars per day? Like how does that, what is happening there? There are so many different directions they could take this. I I want them to bring back Kyle Lowry, re-sign Gary Trent Jr., keep Chris Boucher. I'd probably get rid of Baines, get rid of Hood. Um, I think they could be a really good team when they're healthy. We just didn't see them healthy this year. But Kyle Lowry might just leave because there are teams that are better positioned to contend, or maybe the Knicks are like, hey, here's a two-year max or something, or here's a one-year max, or here's two years and $65 million or something because they want to maintain flexibility while getting him, or maybe he wants to go to Dallas, or Miami will probably be involved. Maybe he views them all as better contenders. What do you do at that point? Do Does having the number four pick embolden you to be like, hey, we have OG, we have number four, whoever that winds up being, Gary Trent Jr. is only 22, should we look at moving Siakam and Van Fleet, both of whom are um, 27? Do we look at moving just Siakam because Van Fleet feels a little bit more plug-and-play? Do we keep it together? Um, the Raptors outscored opponents by 5.8 points per 100 possessions when Siakam, Van Fleet, Trent, and Adenobu played without Lowry. So this is not a bad team without Kyle Lowry. But like, what is? And you could have cap space. If you get rid of Hood, Aaron Baines, keep Boucher, let's say, keep Gary Trent Jr.'s cap hole, you get to about $16 million in cap room, I have no idea who that gets you in this market or who you'd even <laughs> want to get in that market. I just don't know what they're going to do. And then there's just the element of, okay, does having Masai Ujiri make it more likely they would blow it all up? Does it make it less likely? If he leaves, does that mean they're more inclined to rebuild? And they could also technically, I wouldn't endorse this necessarily, but like they could make a huge trade. Like if Dame really was available... Why not? He has four years left on his deal. You have number four. Build that around Van Fleet. Future picks. See what it gets you. Um, you could go after other guys. Like, if you wanted to get in on the Bradley Beal sweepstakes, should those ever become a thing? I think that's probably the least likely path they take. But there are so many different directions they could travel. And I don't know that there's any one right answer. But I also don't know that there's any one more likely answer. And I think people will say that Kyle Lowry is 90% going to leave. I'm just not sold. The fact that he didn't get to play in Toronto last year... The fact that you kind of look at his options, signing and trading now to Philly is tough because they would be hard-capped, which unless they're moving Ben Simmons is almost impossible to get around for them. Miami, like, eh, like, I guess. Uh, The Knicks, no. Dallas, eh. Like, yeah, those are destinations if they're going to pay you, sure. But if I'm Toronto, I don't mind bringing back Kyle Lowry on an inflated two-year deal. So I just think it's more likely that he stays than people are crediting. But I honestly just don't have a feel for how their offseason is going to pan out, which is why I'm tantalized. They're on my list too, and the more I thought about it, though, because for all those reasons, they have all these all these balls in the air potentially, and all these directions they could go. And the Masai Ujiri's future, I think, hangs over everything. But uh, the more I thought about it, the clearer it gets to me that like 
they they're in a great situation. Like they're like to just keep this together. I mean, it's they they didn't luck into the fourth pick. They tanked real hard to, towards the end of the year to get it to improve their like the, you know they earned that quote unquote earned that that fourth pick. But this is a team you know. Granted, Kawhi's gone, Danny Green's gone. They they, they won a title, and then I think you know, I may have been in the bag for him a little bit too much, but not but. This past postseason, I thought they were a real threat to come out of the East again. I re- like, I just like that team. They didn't do it. Right they didn't with come that yeah. close. Yeah, I thought they were really good. The only thing that's changed now that really means anything is Lowry's a little older. But, you know, Siakam, I think, is going to be better than he was last year. The team will not be playing in Florida, which has to be a factor. OG Ananobi is on the Kawhi track. I think, like, I don't think he's Kawhi, but if you just look at their first, second, third, you know, their progressions, the numbers are similar. The makeup is similar. I think Ananobi is a guy that, like, if he just popped an average 20 a game next year on good efficiency and was a first-team all-defense guy, like, not surprised. So their upside just organically is is high. Then you add number four, if that's Jalen Suggs, like, suddenly your three-guard rotation is nasty, and and all you need is a center. and the center is the easiest thing to get and you can play Siakam at center or OG can guard centers going like they're they are like just a sleeping giant that's built to win playoff games for all we just spent you know all this time talking about what playoff teams need they have all that stuff so if you bring Lowry back which like you I hope they do uh you can just be really good now and you've got the number four pick in OG to carry you forward after this core sort of you know the, the older parts of it age out so they have a lot of options don't don't let Lowry get away if you can help it. Uh, I just I, I love the Raptors. I'm always going to love the Raptors, and I want them to stay this way forever. So do I. I just don't have a feel like you for whether they're going to do yeah. it. Grant, this was fantastic. You stayed way longer than you said you were going to, but it was fun to talk about actual basketball. And you know, there's 28 teams are preparing for the off season right now, so uh, it was good to talk about that as well. I'll be pestering you again in the future, as you know. By now, I hope at least. I mean, if it comes as a surprise when I ask you to come on, that's I feel like that's on you at this point. Follow Grant on Twitter at GT underscore Hughes. Does a great job covering the NBA for Bleacher Report and tweeting on a bi-monthly, maybe sometimes even like bi-weekly, if you're lucky, basis. Thanks again, Grant. You got it. Thanks, Dan.